Welcome to the next podcast of Millinery Info. I'm your host, Lauren Ritchie. Thank you so much for joining me today for this episode of Millinery Info, where we join milliners from across the globe into your ears and studio. Today, we welcome Janet Linville to the podcast. I was fortunate to be able to join Janet in her home studio earlier this year. I hope you enjoy as much as I did hearing about her long career in millinery, which also included time at the Met Opera in New York City. Thank you to our wonderful podcast sponsors for their support of this podcast series. Louise McDonald Milliner, The Hat Magazine, Judith M. Millinery Supply House, Hats by Lico, Be Unique Millinery, Lifted Millinery, Hatlocks Australia, Hat Academy, Millinery Australia, Hatters Millinery Supplies and House of Adorn. You can find a link to each of these businesses in our show notes or either through your podcast app. If you've been enjoying this series, I'd like to invite you to become a Patreon of Millinery Info. This is a wonderful way to say thank you and to help us bring the content that you hear on these episodes. We love speaking to milliners from across the globe and hope that you find this valuable as well and we'd love to continue to do so. If you head over to patreon.com forward slash millinery info, you can find out how to become a Patreon supporter of this series. We'd greatly appreciate your support. I hope you enjoy this episode with Janet. Thank you so much, Janet, for having me here in your amazing studio to talk hats. It's an honour to be here. Um, The question that always kicks us off is, how did you first become involved in millinery? Ah, well... Thank you again, Lauren, for inviting me. This is very nice. Um, I got into millinery by complete mistake. It was not (laughs) intentional at all. I come from a little town outside of Buffalo, which is not a fashion capital by any means, then or now, and I had no thought of it at all. Um, I liked history of costume. You know, I loved Abyssinian and Minoan culture when I was in high school, and I thought I'd go into fashion design. I didn't even think of costume design or theater, because, again, I didn't even go to a play until I was in college. You know, <laughs> like, it was like not anything in my radar. So, um, but I think, actually, I got through school, and I got into theater more than I got into uh, fashion by, again, by mistakes, I couldn't get the fashion classes I wanted. So I took the, I'll take the clothing ones in the theater department. And I still like all, both of those things. I kept a double major. I like both of them. I've never given up either one in favor of the other. But, um, I think, um, my first, hmm, my first actual hat that I made, the first job I had, the intro to actually doing hats, was after college. Um, A woman who was ahead of me in one year in class called me a couple of years after graduation and said, I need your help. She was working in the costume shops for the um, floor shows in Atlantic City, so the casino floor shows, and she asked me to come down And, you know, I didn't know what she wanted, but, you know, it was a job and sure. So she said, okay, you're going to figure out the hats. Like, oh, okay. Never made a hat before. Don't know what we're doing. But we had some old hats from Vegas. And what, what Suzanne Gallo knew about me was that 
I'm like a terrier dog. I am going to find out what that is. I'm going to run it to the ground until I know what it is. And we just kind of dissected it and figured out, and what's this material, and what's that, and let's try this. And uh, it was quite the experiment, and it was like triple layer of double buckram. It was like a rock. <laughs> um, and then my boss also had... Um, this gentleman from the Mummers Parade, which I don't know if you... It's like a carnival parade that's in yeah. Philadelphia. Pittsburgh, Philadelphia. Ooh, somebody's going to get mad at me, but I think it's Philadelphia. Anyway, they came and advised me about, you know, balance and counterbalance on something that tall and that big and how not to hurt your customer, right? <laughs> and that was a really great intro. And I, it was lots of fun. But I didn't really like living in Atlantic City. So I got through a weird set of circumstances. My brother knew this guy that knew this guy. <laughs> that <laughs> Yes, like the guy that was supposed to give me an interview at the best costume shop in New York. That was Barbara Materas at the time. And I was going to become a costume designer by getting, you know, entry level job and work my way up. So I went to New York and I interviewed with this guy. And after it was done, he said, you know, I'm not going to recommend you for that job. I want you to work for me. And this guy was Woody Shelp. And Woody Shelp at the time was the, he's passed on now, unfortunately, but he was the top milliner in New York. He did, I mean, he did the chorus line, Top Hats. Those are Woody's. He did every big Broadway show. He did the original Great Gatsby costumes with Robert Redford and Mia Farrow. He did the original Murder on the Orient Express. I mean, Woody was to this day still the most exquisite milliner I ever worked with. He was great. And, you know, at the time I thought, well, you know, I'll just work for him for a little while. <laughs> he was subletting space from Barbara Matera. I'll get to know the people and I'll get the job I really want. But in the meantime, this new thing, I mean, I, like I said, I'd done the things in Atlantic City, but this was different. This was Woody and everything was so beautifully made. And I mean, Woody came from high-end fashion. Yeah. He saw the writing on the wall in, during the 60s and 70s, and he said, I don't, I'm not going to have a career in fashion. He went into theater, but he had that high-end couture attitude towards theater costumes and you know everything was beautifully made um and so that was he was a really difficult person like famously everybody has woody stories but he was the first person that ever really made me believe that i had a special talent that i had it whatever it is he said you just keep going, girl. You've got it in your hands. You've got it. I, like, it was magical. And then, of course, the first time that I he took me to the theater to see the show we were working on, it was Little Me in 1982. And it wasn't much of a show. I think it closed in like a month or two. <laughs> but it was the first time I saw something I made on the New York Broadway stage, and I cried. I was, it was like, I was sold. That was it. I was sold. I'm a goner. No going back, you know, so that was it. 
Um, but, you know, time went by. and I, We worked on great things. But like I said, Woody was really difficult. And there came a time when I just, I couldn't anymore. And I then started working in fashion. And the, the tiny little shop that was just the owner and me and one table. And we made really high end, like they were $1,000 in the 80s. They were really expensive handmade hats. But then that business grew into a big mass market, two floors, 70 people. It changed over the years. And I learned all those things and pattern making and, you know, trying to make things faster and production and all that kind of stuff. So it was a really great learning experience. Oh, I never went to any kind of school. My training is entirely on-site training. Um, And... I like that because I worked for all different sorts of people. I mean, after that, I kind of missed theater, so I kind of did both. I freelanced here. I freelanced there. I worked for so many different people. I don't. I think if I listed them on a resume, it would be like four pages long. There's so <laughs> many people that I worked with. And I learned not just what I liked that they did, but what I didn't like that they did. And, you know, like, mm, I don't like that method. That's shoddy. I don't like that. This hat's really heavy and lumpy, and this one's really great. And um, and I worked with, you know, factory-made things and machine stuff and handmade. So I really liked that mix. And, you know, costume crafts. And, you know, at one time when I was at that small studio, I made a, a mask for a charity ball. And Bill Cunningham took the picture, and it was in the New York Times. It was big, like, woo. And he wrote me a sweet little note after how much he liked it. I was like, you know, there were lots of, there's just so many things that, um, that just were like these special moments that kept me going, you know, because nobody was paying much at all. You know, I had a lot of roommates for a really long time. Um, and I'm trying to think where. Oh, and also, at at that same fa- you know fashion place, David Incorporated, the, the one that turned into a big place, he got a lot of his blocking done at Albrizio Incorporated, and Anne Albrizio started the program at FIT. Mm-hmm. So at one point she says, "Jan, you're going to come teach with me." Now Anne never asked you if you wanted to do anything. She's just More like, instruction. Yeah, "Yeah, you're going to go come teach, and you have to take the classes." And learn what we're teaching, and then you're going to start teaching. So that was 1987 I started. So I did take the classes there, but those are the only, other than now that there's some online classes I've been taking, those are the only classes. Everything else has been, you know, just working for people. And um, what else? And Martin Escardo. And then um, I had my own studio. And that was an adventure. One really big thing that I learned is I'm a better milliner than I am a business person. I learned that one the hard way. Um, And I did that for a long time. I would say that's probably up until about 25, 26 years ago. I was kind of just freelancing in a lot of places. And Well, that was 30 years ago. And then I had my own place for about five Um, And I did things. That was another thrill. I mean, the first time I saw my stuff in the movies and my friends and family could go see things, that was really, that was fun. 
Um, I worked in Stratford Festival one year and I mean, I all, uh, Santa Fe Opera. I mean, I just liked to work with a, a lot of different places. I figure Woody once told me about the apprenticeships. There used to be apprenticeships in millinery and there aren't any more, at least in this country, there aren't any. And there wasn't at the time. And, um, they would last seven years and you'd work your way up from sweeping the floor to doing the last thing you learn was turbans, I think. And since there wasn't one, that was one of my things. I wanted to make my own apprenticeship. So that's my strategy. I wasn't like just non-committal <laughs> or easily bored or anything like that. I really had a purpose in that. And, you know, Everywhere I went, I learned things. Like Stratford, that was when I was probably 86 or something. And that was the first time I'd ever seen thermoplastics. They were using it. I was like, what is this stuff? You know, and now everybody knows about it. But back then, even up until not that long ago, it was very uncommon for milliners to use it. It was costume crafts. But... um you know, that kind of thing. It's like I had to go back and I got a job in a place like Martin Escardo where you could use it. And I was like, you got to try this stuff. This stuff is cool, you know. And um, so that's the thing. I, I, I like toys. I like to play. And I like new stuff. I like to play with stuff, experiment. I like, I go to hardware stores, anywhere. Like one surgical supply places, I, you know, what is this stuff? What does it do? And what can I make out of it? You know, I mean, I just, I get all fired up about things like that. I really, it's so exciting to me. You can tell my voice. I'm like, I'm just thinking about toys. And I'm like, oh, I got to try this. Um, so anyway, but so, yeah. So then I had my studio for about five years was and that a shop front or a like a close? Oh, it was you no, know, it was upstairs. It wasn't a storefront. I didn't have a boutique. I've never had a store. Uh, it was wholesale, and I, I did um, mostly through that. I did so, do some fashion things and subcontracting, but most of it was theater. I did um, my best friend's wedding was one of my big movie out of that. It was really exciting, and I did things for circuses for um, you know Broadway. Miss Saigon, Beauty and the Beast, I mean, like, all sorts of things. And um, ballet, circuses, you know, anything, really. And I liked it, but like I said, I was not a great business person, but I really, I had a crew, and I had people working for me. And then um, in one year, I had, like, the worst year of my life. 96 was the worst year. And when you have your own business, there's a lot of pressure. There's nothing like it. I don't care how hard you think you're working. If you're not with your own business, you are not working as much as anyone who has their own business is working. It's nonstop. So um, a good friend of mine passed away. My brother was diagnosed with cancer. My mother was diagnosed with a terminal illness that was going to kill her in two years. Then my brother had his cancer treatment. Then my mother died in six months, not two oh. years. And then we found out my father had the beginning of Alzheimer's. That was all in one year. It's a big year. It was awful. And I fell apart. And I didn't deliver on time. I didn't do bids. I, you know, 
it was a mess. So we kind of limped along for a while, and then I had this contract in front of me to renew my lease for another five years. And I honestly, I was like, I don't think I want to do this for another five years. I do not have the headspace right now to do it. I don't know. I was completely lost. I had no idea what else I wanted to do or where I wanted to go. And then a week before that deadline, I got a call from the Metropolitan Opera offering me a job interview for the millinery position. And I thought, hallelujah, um, that's what I'm going to do. And they had, you know, I could take sick days off for my dad if I needed to. And it was like a union job. Well, it wasn't actually a union job at the time. But it had some benefits and things and health insurance and, you know, so... I said yes, and that was in 1997. Uh, I started basically uh, on the one-year anniversary of my mom's death, I started. so, And I was there until October of last year. So it was one, thirty about 35 days short of 25 years. Amazing. You know, so, um, yeah, that was... That was great. So this is like, uh, you asked me one question and it's yeah. kind of gone through the whole thing, but that's kind of how yeah. I got into it. I mean, I honestly didn't set out for any of those things, but along the way, I mean, I had really horrible self-esteem, but along the way, there have been people who had faith in me and saw qualities in me, like Suzanne at first bringing me into Atlantic City and then Woody. And I mean, there has just been things you know even the Stratford thing and like they just called Manny's millinery supply and do you know anybody and they knew me and I was like oh I'll go there you know I mean it was just they're just crazy coincidences and um I'm really grateful for that because I, I, you know I don't know what that insecure little small town girl would have been up to I, you know I don't know would she what? believe that you had worked like thirteen year old you that you would go on to be the milliner at the Met Opera? No, no, not at all. And all the other great freelancers. And like all the well other well. great, you know, Shakespeare in the Park, and I mean, like all the other things and movies and stuff. No, absolutely no clue. No clue. I will tell you, we used to laugh at opera singers on the Ed Sullivan show, and <laughs> like, oh, they're so weird. Oh, those voices are so weird. But you know. I have grown to love it. It's really exquisite. So, yeah, the little unsophisticated, insecure girl has changed quite a lot. And um, and now, you know, I'm still changing. I have retired from the Met, but I haven't retired from teaching. I'm still teaching. That I started in 87. I, don't even, I haven't even counted how many years that is. That's <laughs> like the longest job I've ever had. Um, but And I love teaching. Um, I come from a long line of teachers. It's a family business, basically. So um, I never thought I wanted to do it. I was thinking high school students, they don't want to do that. They're going to, like, can't wait to get out of school. I don't want to do that. You know, but college and the college students who are opting to take my class, no one's required to take it. And it's so, it's really been rewarding. I love it. Um, FIT's been going through ups and downs, you know, with enrollment like every other college has. But I, you know, as much as I hope to give to my students, they give me an equal amount. It's it's so, you know, 
invigorating when they're asking me questions. And I think any teacher has that those moments when the student asks you a question and you have to stop and wonder, like, well, why did I say that? Why is that? Is that really a rule? Or is it just <laughs> what I'm accustomed <laughs> to? It? What the, you know, what I was trained in. And, and that is, again, the part of my career that I like is that because I work for so many different people, I'm not set in any one way. I don't think there is one way to do anything. You know, and a, give me a, a really great machine finish over a bad sloppy hand finish. You know, that's great. I, you know, I'll take that too. I have n- no, like, snobbery about that. I, they're all great, and we are all codependent. It's the it's the it's the mass manufacturers that the real only, only reason why we have any materials left to make anything for. Because the little manufacturers wouldn't have kept any factories alive. So we all owe respect to the bigger makers and the, um, than the you know, large-scale people. Mm-hmm. Um, because we just wouldn't have anything without them. So it's all one piece. And I feel like, you know, it's, it's been an, a great circle, you know, at... And I was thinking about this in preparation for this talk. I was thinking about one of my last projects at the Met was Medea. And, you know, there was the big famous 30-foot-long veil that got a lot of press and a lot of pictures in the Times and everything. And it was quite the endeavor. I have great (laughs) pictures of little tiny, tiny pinprick of me with this giant, you know, veil that ate Manhattan. Um... But another project in there was the melted crown that ate the the Jason's bride, right? The disintegrated thing. And what I used in that was a technique that Desmond Healy taught me back in the 80s when I was in Stratford about how to use brown paper packing tape and wire to make these beautiful leaves out of nothing, just packing tape and wire and we leafed it and here I am in my very last Met Opera production using that same technique and I just thought I mean it's a lovely circle there to go back to something like that and and just and that's part of what I want to do now is continue the teaching to pass along little things like that and to honor the people that taught me and you know, just, there's just so many things out there. There's so many things. So, you know, that's amazing. That's my next step is, is teaching is, you know, the, the stress of the Met was too much at, you know, at a point I just didn't want to do that anymore. Um, and, but I respect the people who are there. I think that who took my place is a wonderful milliner. Tommy Cobau is a great milliner and, I see his work, and I'm really happy that, you know, I didn't leave them with, you know, not someone good, and uh, you know, so it that's means a lot to me. So, and to keep this going, and to keep all the lessons going, and all that, it's really great. But there have been, like, like I said, with that that coming around in full circle, 
and the veils, you know, at the Met, I made a lot of veils. I met a lot of veils. There's a lot of veils, and there's a lot of nuns. Yes. No singer likes nuns. There was always like, oh, God, it's a show with nuns. Oh, no. Because, uh, you know, no one wants to be a nun. It covers up your ears. It covers up your throat. No singer likes to be a nun. And it was, there's always, it's nice. all those, you know, Italian opera librettists and composers. <laughs> like the, the nuns are in their life and there's nuns. But um, there was always, that was always the, oh, oh no, um, not another one. But, um, and a lot of veils and beautiful hats and, so many different designers from all over the world that I got to work with. And, I mean, that was so much fun. There was just, um, you know, standout ones like John McFarland was one of my favorite designers. Uh, he really respects the artistry of the people he works with. And we worked, I don't know, three or four times, I can't remember. Uh, and I loved working with him and... You know, people like Mara Blumenfeld, who just were like, this is kind of what I want. And that was that was fun. That was Rusalka was a wonderful production. And she just wanted them to look like they came off of the, the woodland floor, the forest floor. Right. They just rolled around in twigs and sticks. And and that was not made with any millinery materials at all. We were at the beauty supply. We're at aquarium supplies. We were like <laughs> all of like sticks, twigs, whatever. Um, and uh, that was, you know, just just play with it, and that was fun. And then there's the designers that want everything down to, like, the quarter eighth of an inch. And so, again, it was, like, just a wonderful variety. And so, to a point, I guess I have a short attention span. I don't think I would have liked to do the same thing every day, and I didn't have to in theater. So, you know, that was... Yeah, those were great things. And, oh, and I got a couple, what, right before COVID, I guess it was 2019 or 20, I got to make a hat that had to go on fire. It was the Cosi oh. Fantute um, set in the Coney Island sideshow. Mm -hmm. So there were snake charmers and sword swallowers, swallowers and there was the fire eater. And, yeah, we I had to learn how to make a hat that would burn and, and then do and it again then the go out time. yep same hat it, and and it i had no idea i mean learn these things about it, uh, this is one of the reasons i always i urge a lot of my students to just work for theatrical milliners for a while because they do some weird wacky crazy things that you're never going to get in fashion so um yeah there are people in new york well all over the world that um, there's rules about if you have flame on mm -hmm. stage, any kind of flame, or in this woman worked at the sideshow, but she also worked in hotel lobbies if they have some fire effect. She worked in a strip joint if they had some fire effect. I mean, anywhere. And legally, they have to hire people like her to make sure everything is up to code and safe and all that. So she educated me on qualities of felt felt has a little fire retardant and then there was the special wicking and it had to be a certain amount of inches and da, 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 da. so like i had you know we had to do this and we made the hat out of screening like metal screening for doors and oh, wow. leather and felt and 
all the stuff that would not burn because leather also has a little bit of fire retardancy. So, um, and the timing was ex exactly how many seconds it was burning. And it was amazing. It was really amazing that that was a, you know, you never know what you're going to get. <laughs> it's like that Forrest Gump box of chocolates. I have no idea what I'm going to get from one day to the next in theater costuming. And that's the fun part. But then, you know, I also just love the fashion, too. I mean, I've never been able to really choose one or the other. I'm addicted to both. So, um, yeah, that that's, that's my thing. While we were working at the Met, did you have the chance to do some fashion millinery outside of it? or well? A little bit, a little bit. But honestly, between um, my schedule at the Met and then teaching schedule, um, I didn't have a lot of time to do much in fashion. I did a few projects here and there. Um, I taught a few outside fashion classes, and of course, teaching the fashion classes at FIT, that's all fashion. Um, but not a lot, but that's one of the things I'm really looking forward to now is, you know, I have a pension, so I'm teaching, yes, but I also am starting to just make hats for fun and like what do I like to do because for many years I was creative I was making hats but it was you know with the opera it was another designers designs that I had to realize yeah. and so it's been a long time since I decided what materials and what design what and it's a it's a relearning. It really is relearning. It's really exciting. So, and what have you found in that? Well, I really like sculpting things. Um, I like playing with proportions and doing things a little bit differently. Um, I am trying to. I'm actually taking a little break from hat making for a little bit. I started taking a drawing class yes. because I wanted to step back from the three-dimensionality of the hats that I've been making because I thought I would kind of start going back into those worn roots and do the same thing, and I wanted to kind of break it and then do something like just drawing and do my experience my creativity in a whole different way and then reapproach. So that's one of the things. But I'm also choosing the classes that I want to teach. Like I mean I love wire work. You can see I have a yes. few wire work things around my room and I love doing that. It's again a technique that is impractical. It's not particularly cost effective. Um not really um, but it's really fabulous. I love it. And um, I love cut and sew fat hats, too. I really love the modernity of being able to have a hat. Like, complete opposite of the wire work thing. So, you know, you can stuff it in a pocket and go. You can put it in your suitcase and go. Which, you know, you can't do it with the wire work. Although the wire work is... is pretty sturdy, too. Pretty sometimes. sturdy. Yeah. Pretty sturdy. I wouldn't put it in a suitcase, particularly. But it is very sturdy. So, um, yeah. Those are my favorite things. Um, I haven't really gone into the fascinator stuff. I've been enjoying taking classes. Louise McDonald has her pom-pom class, and I, I have a personal 
love for pom-poms. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things, pom-poms and tassels. I do love them. So that's been fun doing things like that. I might take a flower-making class when I get my arm back. I think it would probably be difficult with one hand. Um, so, uh, yeah. But I'm exp I'm doing things that I haven't had the practical time to do and just kind of approaching it slowly. I don't have to rush. You know, I don't... The wonderful thing about being on the pension is I don't have to make money at it, right? So I don't have to worry about that at all. I mean, I don't want to lose money. I don't want to, like, go in, you know, into debt for, you know, an expensive hobby. But, um, you know, I, I don't have to worry about that. I can take my time and re-examine. Re it's been a long time since... I was doing my own thing and I've changed as a person and what I want to do has changed. So, you know, I'll let other people do the cinema and the fascinators for the while. I think I'm going to do some wire work and some, I, well, I want to play around with different shapes like my eight piece cap. I love that as a shape, but there's so many things you can do on all those eight seams. It's got a possibility and each and every centimeter of those eight seams has possibility for change and experimentation so things like that it's like again it doesn't have to work out the first time i'm not on a deadline <laughs> anymore and when you're at the met what would i know every designer is a little bit different and all that but what would be a generalization of the process of working on a show there ah uh, yeah and it's changed a little bit over the years and which is one of the reasons it got a little bit more remote which is one of the reasons i didn't want to stay so much longer anymore but at the beginning you know you would sit down with the designers you'd have a long meeting with them and they'd go over what their idea was they'd give you research pictures just for a feeling sometimes it was specific i want that hat <laughs> you know you know it was sometimes um but a lot of the time it was just the feeling of it the zeitgeist of the what they were trying to establish on uh on stage and you talk about the materials what the dresses were made of and what it's the same materials and whether they wanted it to be exact or loose or all that kind of stuff so you just got the the feel of it from the designer and then we usually made mock-ups. Um, there was some economically very tight times after 9-11 where they didn't want us to make mock-ups and just go straight in. Um, you know, sometimes it worked out and sometimes it didn't work out. Depends on how complicated the hats were. And sometimes they were really complicated. Um, and at first, when I first started there, I was non-union. And I was doing all of it. I was doing crafts, masks armor everything and um it was a while before i got any assistant i was there you know they didn't care i was non-union so they didn't care if i was working there till three in the morning and i was a lot saturdays and sundays a lot and then we finally got my position unionized and then it was like oh no you're you have to leave we're not paying <laughs> you overtime and double time and triple time no you have to go so then I was well I need assistance then if you still want this work to be done so then it started to spread out and get divided and so there was a craftsperson and all that stuff so I was you know specifically doing millinery and we had sort of a, a rule if you you know, some things like helmets or stuff. Is that a hat? Is that crafts? And our rule of thumb is if you knock on it and made noise, it was crafts. That's if a it good didn't make criteria. noise, it was a hat. So sort of, you know, it was loose. But, 
it's sometimes just determined by who was busier than yeah. you know and for we don't have unions in australia but yeah. could you describe like what does that mean for someone to have a union position versus not a mm. union and how do you change that <laughs> right well good luck with that because union is not very popular here anymore either but um unfortunately um but the union the met is one of the highest paying millinery craft costume jobs in the united states if not the highest paying um and that's because of the union and the negotiations we have health insurance we have savings plan. Now, it's a little different. There's staff people, and then there's per diems, and the per diems are still union, but they don't have the, quite the same um, benefits and days off and sick days and stuff like that, which is, you know, we're still working on getting that a little more even. But it was mostly the, the pay and also the hours. Now, for my entire career, whether it was fashion or theater, you know, you'd go in at like 9 or 10 o'clock, but you didn't leave maybe till 2 or 3 in the morning. You worked all night many times. And there was no, I mean, I suppose once in a while you could say, I have to go, I have a doctor's appointment, I have a kid that's sick, blah, 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 that kind of thing. But most of the time, if you said that too much, you were not going to get hired again. At the Met, you know, there's a set hours, you know, and after that, hour they have to pay you double time or time and a half or whatever so they are more circumspect about that so the benefit of the of the union job was that you could have a life you could have a family and see them and a loved one you know and and not have to miss them all the time but um and miss events and kids plays and all that stuff but um but there's a trade-off, because the work was more exciting on Broadway and the movies and all of that stuff. It was more exciting. But, um, yeah, but you had to give that up. And, and there's union also in TVs and movies. That's all union. And that's kind of a mix. You are working 14 hours a day and you never see your family, but you get paid even more than at the Met. That's the best paying gig and that's all union. It's the same union. It's just, you know, different contracts. So, you know, it was a very good thing for me at the time. I had kind of had my adventures in Funland and doing weird, crazy things for like no money. Um, but I kind of feel like people who start off that way, it's sensible for their bank accounts, but I wouldn't trade all those weird late hours I wouldn't trade them I mean they were great and experimental I mean you know you could afford to make a mistake where when you're getting paid that much it's really you make a mistake and people's are like really angry with you <laughs> very angry with you so um yeah that I think that's the difference there is that it you know it's the lifestyle and the money. The big the the movies a lot of people are giving up straight theater. So one of the problems people are having trouble keeping people in the regular shops because they're making so much more money in T V and movies. And you know, their friends get to see oh, I worked on this and it's glamorous and all that kind of stuff. But but it kills your life. It does. I mean it's it's fourteen hour days, six sometimes seven hour seven-day weeks, it's 
really oh. punishing, really punishing. But it is fun sometimes. <laughs> and I didn't like it, but... Yeah, you found a good spot, though. And yeah, when you were doing... Uh, back to hat-making versus mm-hmm. unions. Um, when you're doing the designer presents a sketch or the rough vision of what they're after, mm-hmm. and you're doing those mock-ups, are you making them in a like fabric, or what's that... What are you trying uh, to achieve <clears throat> through that mock-up? Well, you know, sometimes it depended. If it was a really technical thing, I'd just do muslin, because muslin's cheap, and I'm not sure if I'm going to have to make, you know, three or four versions of it. And <clears throat> Excuse me. It also depended on the designer, because some designers can look at a muslin and can visualize exactly what you're talking about in that fabric. You know, and like John was like that. He didn't need to see it in the same color or the same fabric at all or a similar. We, we, had, we had scrap bags and I'd try for some designers. I'd, you know, go through all the scraps and try to find something that has sort of the same color range, the same tone, the same kind of drape. But, you know, and, and you did that. You knew, you know, you worked with the designers long enough or, or people would hear, oh, she's very, you know, specific. you got to show her this, this, and that. And some designers would have to see multiples, like, and then pick which one. So it was, you, you just learned which designers had which visual skills and, and who needed more input um, and those that didn't. So, you know, you kind of tailored it for that um and again that's again one of the reasons i loved working with john so much he was fabulous john mcfarland was fabulous wonderful and then when it comes to the designs agreed um and sourcing of materials are you out there hunting or no no i kind of missed that actually (laughs) at the met they have a shopper and she has a crew, and there's, you know, her sometimes down to her just her, but most of the time she's got at least one other, if not two or three other people, and they source things and they work with the designers with that. Um, the, um, I would usually, you know, oftentimes the designers would ask me what kind of fabric you think would work with this. But honestly, um, the, one of the changes that they made that, again, I was not real happy about was less and less direct with me and more with production managers. And so there were design designers who never asked my opinion about what fabrics or anything. I just got sketches and got to, you know, make these. So, you know, that took away the collaborative aspect. And I think anybody, it's true in design, fashion design, but it's really true in, in theater that if you get into theater, I don't care if it's acting or whatever, the collaborative process is what you're addicted to. It's what you love about it. And taking that part away or lessening, let's say, wasn't completely taken away, was sad. It made me sad. I missed it a lot. So, yeah, I didn't like that. And now I was working on, you know, some projects for my myself after I retired and I went back into the stores and, well, first of them, half of them aren't there anymore because, <laughs> you know, whatever, that's the way it is. But um, just going in and talking to the store owners and, oh, I like this and what's this called? Again, it's sort of like, what's this called? <laughs> you know, like, oh, what is this another toy. <laughs> what is this thing? Um, and how do you use it? And... Um, so going out and shopping in person again was, again, it's a, an adventure for me. It's, it's going back to 
what I liked a lot about that. So, you know, I, I, I have no regrets about them. That I, I loved working there. Towards the end, it just wasn't what I wanted to do anymore in my life. I mean, if I were 20 or 30, I might want to do that. But, you know, I'm getting towards the end of my life, and I'm like, you know, I don't want to do that anymore. I, want, I don't want to, like, just get an order. I want to work with people and, and get that juice you know, or just work with me and what I want to do and get that juice that way, you know. So, what, whatever, you know. But, yeah. So, lots of nuns and not lots of veils as well, it sounds lots like. <laughs> and lots of, like, weird stuff, you yeah. know. Like I said, with Mara Blumenfeld and the, and the forest floor and the fire thing and Laurent Pallier, and we did these crazy things for uh, Cendrillon with these little coxcomb hats and all these weird little things that were very stylized. And then then also one of my first projects was with uh, Sir James Acheson, and that was his Figaro, and that was maybe the first or second season I was there. And he's, like, very historically correct, and I was hand-rolling yards and yards and yards of ruffle for the underbonnets of the hats and you know that was fabulous too so i mean yeah i i like i like a little variety i would say i would that's definitely part of <laughs> i like a little variety um yeah and would you see hats that you'd made come back through the workroom again oh, through reprisals? Oh, or? yeah. Oh, that's um, the Met. That is the Met. You know, you... Yeah. That is most of your job is fixing up. You know, we do... Uh, it changed a little over the years, but we did start it off with, like, maybe four new productions, and now I think they do seven new productions. And all the rest of them, 25, 28 productions, are all revivals. And some of them are from last year, and they just need a little fixing up, or somebody's new in the role, and they don't fit them, and, you know, whatever. But some of them have been in a box for 40 years. Mm. Literally. Some of them were cleaned before they were put in the box. Not all of them. (laughs) It depends on how busy the crew was and whether they had a you know day worker budget or not and because it's again it's a lot about it the money um and whether they had anyone to do that stuff or whether they just had to throw it in a box and get on to the next show and some of them uh you know you could tell oh yeah this person packed that one oh and they just i mean last year there was a box that literally everything was completely smashed and destroyed and we had to re-block a huge show where every chorus man had three different hats and they were all in bad shape but then there were also hats when we opened up the box and there was nothing there but fluff because the moths had eaten the entire box of fur and fur felt hats, and there was just fluff at the bottom. So, you know, most of the things come out just fine. They need a little work, and some of them are a little tired. And some of there's the some dry rot issues. You know, you sit around any fabric that sits around for 30 years in a box. You know, 
dry rot's going to happen to some of them or to the thread, if not the fabric and the seams pop and all that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of people at the Met that are excellent at triage. You know, our costume, the fifth floor costume shop does a lot of the chorus and most of the, those new shows, they just have to go on people because we can't afford to make all new for the chorus. The principals, maybe there's a budget, but the chorus and the supers, but they are experts at triage. How can I save this costume? <laughs> what can we do? What extraordinary measures do we have to go to to keep this thing alive? Um, and because you have to, because of the budget, you know, I mean, it's it's always about the budget at, in any performing. It's not just the Met. Every performing company is certainly these days, you know, hard times. So, you know, you have to stretch that dollar a lot. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was, yeah. And, you know, part of that is, you know, early on in my career, this is another Woody lesson, right? A late night two in the morning Woody lesson. Um, I think I was doing multiple head sizes and everything, and he heard me sigh. He said, what's what's the matter? And I said, well, you know, it's a little boring. I'm doing this hours. And that was not the right thing to say. That I got the riot act about being bored. You know, so it's like most of the job, a lot, most of every job, is tedium and repetition, things you've done before. It's kind of boring. Just get over, suck it up, stop, right? Just get on with it. And um, so, yeah, that was true at the Met. There was like most of it was opening up boxes and seeing what I can use, what I can save, what I can't, what I have to replace. Going through the measurement charts, what's and measuring the hats and who can fit this and who used to wear it. We kept records of. Everything was labeled and who, what the size of those people were and how can we transfer it. There was all these, like, two-column graphs with little lines connecting. This one can wear, like, <laughs> you know, like, how can I make all of these hats work? And sometimes that worked out and sometimes it didn't. We had to make replacements and try to match up the fabrics and the fibers and the colors and all that stuff from before and, you know, from 30 years before and, not what the colors were then, but what they were when they came out of the box, which <laughs> not exactly their original color all the time. So, yeah, that w it was, um, you know, it was a problem solving. And I think that's, that's what I like about hats in general, right? It, they're little objects that have very little connection with your head. Like a garment has shoulders and busts and waists and hips and attachment places, right? A hat has basically one. And you have to figure out the balance and how that stays on the hat and how to make it communicate, this one object communicate and how it goes with everything. And so I think that's, again, I like solving puzzles like my friend figured out. You're gonna do these hats because you like to figure out puzzles. I like to figure things out, and I like to problem solve. And I think that hats are, I mean, I'm sure that's true of all fashion. I just don't see it that way. You know, I relate to the hats, but, you know, it's just like, how, do, how does that one little thing on the head connect to everything, connect to the person's face, 
and how they carry themselves and what feeling they want, not just the clothing. And, you know, yeah. And and then theater, how does it work with the designer, the choreographer, the the spacing? If they're dancing, does the, they're partnering. How high can that be? Oh, we got to make that shorter. I mean, there was a hat once I made a beautiful tricorn, you know, fabric-covered buckram tricorn. It was gorgeous with big ostrich feathers and everything. And I got called down to stage to look at something. And in the course of the action, they threw it into the fountain and it had real water in it. (laughs) Like, you put my buckram, silk-covered buckram hat tricorn in a real water? What? Like, you didn't think I would need to know that? I could have made it up something else if I'd known it was going into water. You know, so, you know, again, the big problem solving. That's a big it's problem. Just, yeah, that big problem. I've had hats used as weapon to beat someone. It's like, oh, can't put a wire edge on that one because he might get a wire in his eyeball. So let's not do that. So, yeah, exactly. There's been a lot of... Um, and how to burn something on stage. That sounds like that's a pretty amazing one. Yeah. Did you always get to see the productions of the hats, or did you get to a stage where you just... No, no. You know, early on in my career, when we were doing Broadway, you always got tickets to see them afterwards. And once in a while, you'd go down. If there was a problem, you'd go down and see dress rehearsal or, or um, you know, previews or something like that. But the opera... No, we almost never saw anything. Um, you know, and it was really different for me because I, you know, Stratford, we were required to watch rehearsals in many places. I, you know, that was part of the deal. You needed to go because you were responsible for whether that worked or not and whether, the, oh, that you would see, oh, that's not staying on the person's head like that or it wasn't placed by the wig maker right where you needed it to be and all that kind of stuff. You would you were responsible. But at the Met, there's an in-house designer who's lovely, Sylvia Nolan, very hard job. Um, and she's responsible for making sure everything looks the same for the rep productions, right, that the designer's idea continues. And she would look at it and her assistants, and then there were production managers. Um, so... And that role of the production manager increased, and they would see it. So I almost never saw anything in dress rehearsal unless it was a real technical issue or if the designer was like, I want you to see it, and they would insist that I get to go down there. But again, because we were getting paid a lot of money, they didn't want us just hanging out there. It was other people's jobs. So occasionally we would get tickets, most of the time we got tickets to the things that weren't selling, but whatever, we did see them. But And once in a while, it was, something was really important to me, and I would say, I'm, I'm going to get a ticket for that. And we would get discounts and, you know, house discounts and things, and I would go see it. Like, I saw Medea. That was my last show, and I was like, there's no way I'm not seeing Medea. And I saw my fire co-see because I needed to see the fire ha- happen. <laughs> you know, there were things that I really, I didn't actually do that much on that one show, but I loved the aesthetic and I was like, I, I definitely go see it. So over the years, like I said, when I was a kid, we were making fun of opera. It was really like, like the screechy, weird stuff, crazy. But it's wonderful. There's still oh, things that I don't like. There's a lot of like. Well, there's okay. a lot of range within opera as well. When yes. you say opera, it doesn't necessarily 
um, dictate one one type of music either. No, no. there's a <laughs> the lot story. of variety, and and it's weird. Like I love Philip Glass operas, but I could not listen to Philip Glass just music drives me crazy. But the operas I love, you know. I mean, it's you know, it became very personal about that sort of thing. So, you know, um, and then, you know, also the. The teaching gets very personal, too. You know, I mean, one of the really standout times when I was teaching, um, like I said, it's been a long time. So there's a lot of professionals out there that started in my class, that, you know, or took one of my classes. And um, I used to live in East Village. And there were two guys downstairs for me, two drag queens that had this, like, kitschy store with, like, you know, Barbie lunch boxes and stuff like that, you know. And one day they were like, oh, you have to come down, come come see, i got a sh- something to show you. And I'm, they're dragging me down the street a couple of doors down. And I look up, and there is one of my former students had opened a store, and that was Barbara Feynman. And, and years later, she had that store for a long time. It was meant a lot, like one of my students had started their own brick and mortar. It was great. And then after many years, she decided, I, you know, I'm slowing down. I want to get somebody in here. And so one of my other students I recommended, and that was Julia of East Village Hats, Julia Knox. So, I mean, again, I feel like, you know, I'm, I feel like I've been participating in such a great history, like from from these little shops and little fashion I saw when when I first started there were lots of stores and now there's really hard to find so that's changed a lot and online and then there's online classes and you know I mean it it's just so different and I'm so glad that you know I wish I'd maybe there's times when I wish I'd started when there were lots of materials in the heyday of millinery and all that stuff but I'm, I think one of the things I always want to get my students to do, right, is to keep their minds open, right, to different materials, different methods. Don't close your mind to anything. You know, don't close your mind to glue. What's the, it's not evil, you know, it just, it might not be for every application. It might not be the right glue for this. Don't, you know, whatever. But, um, and you know, there's beauty. I mean, I don't want to discount completely handmade hats, but I don't want to discount factory-made hats either. And you shouldn't close your mind. You should learn how to use those set-up mission, the millinery machines. You don't know what you're going to do. Um, there's a milliner, Lola, that I, I love. And um, she started very high-end in the East Village, very high-end handmade hats. She has the hottest thing in town, and she was for like a decade and she loved it and she never wanted to do wholesale only you know brick and mortar and then she just kind of stopped wanting to do that and she went into wholesale and she's wholesaling hats now she just changed her mind and so you don't know if you have you're thinking you're going to have a career for 20 30 40 50 years you're not going to be the same person at the beginning, as you are at the end. You're not going to want the same things. 
You're not going to see the world the same way. And the world will change around you whether you like it or not. And there'll be different materials. Things There's things that I love but are not being made anymore. End of story. Can't find them. Nowhere in the world. Forget it. But there's new things. Are they as good? Eh, we'll see. They work for this. They don't work for that. But, you know, you just have to adapt. And... So for my students, first of all, I always tell them, work for somebody else. At least two years of working for somebody else. And there's two places, preferably both. One is a retail shop, a shop that has customers coming in and out. And you see the owner working with the customer reading the customer, whether they want you to be in their face or not, or stand back, whether they want help or not, whether, you know, what kind of hat they're looking for, what colors, what shapes suit them. And it, it's an incredible skill. And you don't just, well, some people do just have that, but most people have to learn the nuances of that. And you can lose an awful lot of money if you don't have that skill. If you open a brick and mortar and don't know how to deal with your customers, they're not coming back. So um, that's really important. And again, like I said, learning things that you like that they do and things that you don't like. If they're a mess with their business and papers and they don't know what who's gotten paid and they don't pay you on time. I mean, I work with people who bounce their checks all the new paychecks all the time. I mean, you know, not good. Um, and and then also theatrical millinery to work with a theatrical millinery just because of all those different materials and uh, approaching materials in a just a, a reinventing them and making do and getting those deadlines and being used to the change because like change all the time who's in the cast who's not in the cast god help us in covid oh my god and during covid you'd have eight different casts in a week it was like oh my god it was so hard to keep up with but but the materials and and the period costumes you know the details that you wouldn't necessarily get but then you can go and if you're working in fashion, you can incorporate those kind of things and those materials. And it's not what everybody else is doing because you have this different kind of experience. And, you know, you can go into a hardware store and see things. Ooh, I can make something with that. And it's like, you know, $2.50. <laughs> you know, it's this little weird thing. But that would make a great decoration. I like the shape, you know. I mean, you know, I, that's, I always, you know, my students, so just like, yes, take all the lessons you want. You're going to learn a lot in the lessons you can teach from anybody. And that's great. But working for someone, it's no competition. You're going to learn a lot more. You're going to refine that. You're going to make choices and you're going to find your way of doing things. Because again, if there's anything I learned in my motley bag of my experiences is there is no single way of doing anything there's a lot of right ways a lot of them so you just have to find what's right for you and what you're comfortable with and what and a customer 
that likes it. That's a big one, too. Finding a customer that appreciates your style is an important part. And can and, you know? And you can tailor that cust that customer's budget to what you want to do. I don't really like it when I see my students not getting paid and getting a fair market price for what they do. And um, and one of the uh, actually my one of my favorite classes to teach is Design Studio. And in Design Studio, they can make whatever they want, any material they want, any kind of hat. They can make wood hats, wood veneer. I, I don't care. Make it out of paper. I don't care. Um, or traditional things. Up to them. It has to be unified by a theme. But they also have to start writing down how long it takes them. And they don't get graded on whether they're fast or slow. They just have to start writing it down. And they have to write down where they get their materials. So they start keeping records of what store, how much it costs. And they have to add up how much it costs. Now, students is you know the hat's gonna be like you know 65 hours for one little tiny hat or something like that because it's gonna take them a long time and it's not whether you know it's to give them a sense of like okay what what would this kind of hat what do you see it selling for this kind of quality and the kind of hat, go shop see what other people are selling it for can you make a profit doing that or not? Is that kind of, the kind of thing that you want to worry about? I mean, some people don't have to worry about it, you know, and they just make what they want to make and, you know, doesn't matter. But not very. there's not that many people who can afford to just not worry about it at all. So, you know, I want them to get started thinking about, you know, the practical aspects of it, too. You know, a lot of them ditch it as soon as they get out of my class and don't care at all. And that's fine. It's their choice. But it's really, you know, to get a sense of what you're worth and to also learn that there are more, if you pay attention to the time, you can become more efficient. If it's just sort of like, oh, you're doing it and you're tired, whatever, you don't know how long it takes you. But Woody, that again was another thing with Woody, learned so much from that man he said to me one time I was doing my head sizes and it took me like a half an hour 40 minutes to put my first head sizes in or something he goes you have 15 minutes did you make it I did and it had to be perfect for Woody I mean perfect but you know you nick at it like you know oh okay so you don't go like you know drag your thread out you keep it at a reasonable and it's like that dragging it out after you take you take your stitch and you keep taking your stitch and you get a rhythm and you get going and you get it done and um yeah no actually Woody was 20 minutes when I went to the fashion business that was 15 he took another 5 minutes off of it so yeah cuz that was all about profit. So, you know, there's, there's definitely magic. There's definitely magic, but there's also methods. And, and I, I, that's another thing that I'm really anxious to teach students. It's not just all about the pretty stuff. It's about the practical things. How, do you, how can you do this and not waste a lot of time? You know, it's one of the reasons I love pattern making. It's like you take your time and make a perfect pattern. You are not going to be wasting time 
fiddling with whether this matches up and that matches up and then it came out a different size it will come out the size you do the the math and the precision on your patterns it's not magic it's math basically patterns and I, I like nearly flunked math all my life and if I can do it anybody can do it so but I think that you know those kind of things are really to mix the magic and the methodology, the precision and the play. You know, that's that's what I've really enjoyed in my career, really. The, just the mix of that. I'm, I like the precision and I also like just playing. And yeah, that's... And now you get to play. And now I get to play a lot more. I do, I do. And, and like I said, you know, sharing all the little things like that you know I love showing that you know Desmond Healy paper, packing tape flower feather you know laurel wreath leaf kind of technique I love sharing that and people are just like oh my god it's brown paper packing tape and some tie wire it's beautiful and you can make all sorts of things with it. And, uh, you know, and the designer for Medea, Dohi, uh, Dohi Luti, uh, she was like, oh, my God, that is great. And she loved that technique. And we went to town with it. And it was just, you know, and I love doing that. It's bringing it, you know, full circle, showing something that Woody showed me, showing something that, you know, Desmond Healy showed me. And, like, you know, it's just... I mean, I feel really blessed. I really do. I mean, there's always been frustrations. There's always been, you know, like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. I have, you know, no money and I have no savings and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But it's been, it's been a really good ride. I really, you know, I have no complaints, really. Well, sometimes I do, but I get over it. <laughs> I do moan a bit once in a while. <laughs> but then I don't think I'd be human if I didn't. So, Well, thank <laughs> you only... so much for having me here and sharing your amazing story. We can't wait to see what your play and what a Janet Lindner yeah, looks like. I know, I <laughs> know. I know, I've never entered any kind of competitions or anything. I was like, hmm, maybe I'm going to do that. We'll see. Exhibitions, that kind of thing. I don't know. We'll see. We'll Fun. see. Thank you. Yet to come. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's really been fun talking to you about this. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Milan Room Poo. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Janet. Thank you to our wonderful podcast sponsors for their support. House of Adorn. Hatter's Millinery Supplies, Millinery Australia, Hat Academy, Hatblocks Australia, Lifted Millinery, Be Unique Millinery, Hats by Lico, Judith M. Millinery Supply House, The Hat Magazine, and Louise McDonald Milliner. You can find a link to each of these businesses in our show notes. That's in the podcast app that you're listening through or on our website. You can also find on our website a series of images that go along with this episode. So if you heard Janet speak about something, head over to see if there might be a photo that goes along with it it's fascinating to see her work as well 
If you've been enjoying this series while you're online, how about you head over to patreon.com forward slash millinery info and sign up to be a Patreon of millinery info. There are three different tiers available. The first one is a little thank you to millinery info. The second one is called millinery info. You inspire me. And the third one is uh, becoming a podcast sponsor. These tiers help support us in different ways, but all equally valuable in continuing to make this episode series. Thank you for joining me for this episode with Janet Linville. I'm your host, Lauren Ritchie, and I look forward to talking hats with you again soon.